Welcome to the John Chapman Show, where we talk about the path of a wealthy millennial, uncovering the truth about building and protecting your nest egg. Join us on this journey as we hear the stories of millennials and mentors alike to help you plan, manage, and protect your wealth. John is an employee of Worth Point LLC. All opinions expressed by John and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Worth Point. This podcast should not be relied upon for investment decisions and is for informational purposes only. Hello, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. We're back on the podcast at the John Chapman Show. It's so good to be together. I want you to know how excited I am for you, my high-performing millennials, especially those with equity comp. Man, it's a good day to be saving and investing. I got to tell you, my hope for this show is to give you some education, but really just some encouragement so that you can save, build, and protect your wealth. Beyond that, I want you to have an impactful life. Okay, today's show is about providing a brief overview of the financial services industry. I get a lot of questions about wealth management, just how it works and how it's structured. And uh, frankly, it's easy to explain with a quick analogy. But be, before just doing that, I want to give an overview of not just how it works, but also how we got here today and what have been the quantum leaps in the history of financial services starting, let's say, in the 60s and 70s. And so throughout this episode, I want to speak to, if you were an investor over the past uh, 40, 50 years, who you were dealing with and how you were dealing with them uh, as it relates to saving your monies. You know, it's important to bring up because uh, for those of us that are millennials, we've lived in an age of technology. So we've only interacted with the internet. And this era is uh, dramatically different than those before us. So, you know, in my if you know my history, I spent uh, eight years or so between a little bit of Merrill Lynch, mostly at Fidelity Investments. So during that time, I worked with a lot of baby boomers, and it was actually through those interactions that I came to know what investing was like over the past 40 or 50 years. And um, maybe it was just the nerd in me, the geek that loves this industry, but I just found it totally fascinating. And I find that it's a story that isn't necessarily being told. So if you're interested, I think you'll really enjoy this. It's super interesting. Okay, before we get started with the history lesson here, I'm going to pull out my wand and my chalkboard. I've got something new today. Let's do some trivia questions. Heck yeah. Gosh, I remember walk down memory lane Monday night trivia at the Ram in Seattle. Woo! Shout out. Who was there? Moving on. Okay, let's start trivia. So um, let's see, I've got four or five questions here. I don't expect everyone to know the answer, but I found that these were just fun. So here we go. Question number one, there are two major stock exchanges for US publicly traded companies. What are they? Simply just name them. So what are the two major stock exchanges? Uh, Bonus question on top of this. I don't expect anyone to know it because I had to Google it, but what year were they established? What year were the exchanges established? All right, next question. When you listen to the radio, wait, what? What's the radio? I have Sirius XM. Or watch TV. Oh, bro, I cut the cord. Uh, Okay. When you read the news, what are the three most typical indexes? What are the three most typical indexes that are quoted or referenced? Yes, there are three. Picture yourself driving... Uh, you're listening to the news, and they say, blah, 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 was up certain amount of points. What are those three indexes? 
Next question. Which exchange is also an index? Which of the two exchanges is also an index? And then very last question. Which index is cap-weighted, capitalization-weighted, cap-weighted, and which index is price-weighted? Ooh, super geeky. I love it. Cap-weighted versus price-weighted. Okay, good questions, four or five or so. I will answer those at the end of our short episode here, so in the next 20 minutes or so. Let's uh, jump in now to our history lesson. Okay, you are 30 years old in 1970. What's up? You probably got long hair and um, some awesome flood pants on, maybe some baby blue, maybe a baby blue jacket, right? Yes. And you've got $10,000, $100,000 in savings, whatever the way. How do you invest and who are you dealing with? Well, this is the quote-unquote stockbroker. You needed a broker who had access to the exchange. There wasn't the internet to do it, so you'd literally call up a dude. Let's call him Jerry. You call Jerry and say, I want 100 shares of Dow Chemical, Coke, DuPont, you know, old stocks. And uh, probably Jerry would cost uh, a couple hundred dollars as a one-time commission. And you'd uh, send in your money. He'd mail back to you a piece of paper called something called a stock certificate. It's a relic. Awesome. If you haven't seen a stock certificate, Google it because they're actually kind of cool. And there you go. That was it. (laughs) It wasn't culturally appropriate to talk with Jerry about your budget. You know, you didn't talk to Jerry about your retirement planning or the home that you were going to buy necessarily. Of course, part of that was cultural, but part of that was just the fact that, um, first of all, you most likely had a pension from your company after you stopped working there. So those that don't know, pension just simply means a a paycheck to you after you're no longer working. And it's usually a portion of your paycheck. So whatever it is. So you, 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 you stop working at 62, you get a pension from the company after you've retired. But also the second thing is life expectancy was so much shorter. So you'd probably croak at what, 70, 75. So uh, there wasn't really a long retirement lifespan. So anyway, so you just, you, you just Jerry sent you a stock certificate and uh, that was basically it. A side note on the term stockbroker, it's funny that this has persisted uh, throughout time. And uh, even to this day, I guess some people still think of me as a stockbroker, which I find hilarious and also derogatory. I'm just kidding. But yeah, I, I, the, the stockbroker terminology is, is really, that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, the stockbroker used to hold the keys to the castle in some way because, because they did have maybe in some cases a little bit more access than the, than the consumer out there. And they were closer to the exchange so people would fight and claw for info, and you'd ask the broker if he had to have recommendations. I think one of the most awesome things we need to give credit to technology for is having all of this information be at your fingertips in a nanosecond. So it's no longer that there is an edge with information, and uh, it's highly unlikely that you're going to call a uh, quote-unquote broker. And we've all morphed and transitioned into the areas that actually add value, which is stuff like planning for future goals, avoiding pitfalls, staying diversified, having a confidant. So all of that I'll get to later. So we're going to move away out of the period of the 60s into the late 70s, early 80s, And now we are in the era of the mutual funds, the rise of the mutual funds. These are companies like Franklin Templeton, Janus, American Funds. 
and probably the more popular ones that we know of, Vanguard and Fidelity. This was a heyday of mutual funds. So, you know, the downside to picking an individual stock, it was crazy risky because you weren't diversified. And so the best way to diversify is through a mutual fund. This is where a company would package up hundreds, maybe thousands of stocks. And so you'd likely see an ad in the paper and you'd fill out a little form, send in your $10,000 and the mutual fund company would send you back a receipt and you would own shares of that mutual fund. And you might see the price changes uh, published weekly or so in the newspaper. So pretty interesting, the evolution uh, to not, not necessarily dealing with a broker, you could, but you could also go direct to the company, uh, the mutual fund company. Fast forward into the 90s, finally technology takes hold, the internet takes hold, and a lot of these mutual fund companies, those that were uh, ahead of their curve, really began the online presence, much of which we, we sort of, which morphed into what we know today as the discount brokers. So you could go direct to Fidelity, go direct to Schwab, and on their website then start buying uh, uh, shares of their mutual funds. Uh, when it first started, I found this interesting for Fidelity, especially, uh, you could only buy their mutual funds. So it'd be like going to Nike's store and just being able to buy Nike shoes. And really in the early 2000s, that morphed into more of like a grocery store where you go to your, your, your big market and now you can buy not only their product maybe, but other people's products. So at Fidelity, you could buy other fund families. And that was just a natural evolution of the technology, which hugely benefited the investors. So who are you dealing with now really becomes the uh, these big brokerage companies, uh, discount brokers, as some people used to call them, and how you're interacting with it primarily started to shift towards online. I think an interesting, another interesting dynamic, too, that comes along with this is by the time we get to the uh, 2000s and beyond, the rise of the financial planner really takes off. And the stockbroker is, is <laughs> almost a dinosaur at this point. Part of the reason for that, one, uh, employees are no longer as loyal to their companies or maybe vice versa, whichever it is. Companies aren't as loyal to their employees. And pensions are so expensive to maintain that they just started to slowly fizzle away. So highly unlikely that any of us uh, will have a pension when we get to retirement. And so because of that, the burden now shifts on you and saving. It's no longer based on the company. So because you are the person that's now uh, in the driver's seat in terms of saving, the financial planner becomes the confidant to talk about, well, how much do I need and how do I do it? And when do I spend the money and all these types of questions? The second thing is that people are living so much longer, well into their 90s and probably for us, um, possibly into the, well, the hundreds, you know, we'll see. So and that, and then that begs the question of, you know, will this money last? And so, okay, so let's continue on with our history lesson. We're actually almost to the end, and then I'm going to transition. So the good news of the early 2000s and the technology was that it just put the investor in the driver's seat. And then there was just this flurry of DIY. Everyone's the new Warren Buffett. People are picking stocks all over the place. They're picking funds at, at, at bay, at random. And, uh, and then 2008 rolls around. 
and absolutely annihilates everybody's investment portfolio. Uh, definitely not something to laugh at, but a lot of interesting insights with hindsight being 2020. People started to understand that, uh, yeah, you need to be properly diversified. Sometimes you were had five different funds again, but maybe every fund was the same. Um, and there needs to be a method of the madness of what you're buying and how you're doing it. So I think another reality was that people learned there's a balance between DIY and working with a planner so that you can uh, save for a rainy day, save for retirement and, and those sorts of things. So, you know, post 2008 is when we started to see the rise of the robo advisor. And uh, that really came out of so much academic research, which was great about how to create the optimal portfolio. Again, just to juxtapose, in the past, uh, people bought stocks and they bought stocks thinking uh, through a broker, thinking that um, they had an information edge, you know, company A is better than company B. And so I'm going to sort of bet on that sort of thing. Um, but fast forward to today, uh, if you're of the opinion that all information is readily available and there's hundreds of thousands, millions of people with hundreds of millions of dollars chasing the same information, um, that essentially means that most all known information is already baked into the stock price, making your ability to get an edge on stock A versus B super challenging and extremely um, unlikely. So the robo advisor says uh, through all this academic creatures, hey, you know, probably the more important thing is what's your weighting between stocks and bonds? How risky are you on a scale from one to 10 as an example? Uh, let's just uh, uh, invest uh, Make sure we're tax efficient, diversify, and then get out of your own way <laughs> because we just need to take what the market gifts us. And surveys have shown we, we haven't done that in the past. So it was great to have uh, the robo-advisor uh, make the modern portfolio or the optimal portfolio just more readily recognizable. And uh, they did a good service in explaining that. I have to say an interesting part of the robo-advisor phenomenon, people predicted the death of the financial planner. And that totally never materialized. If anything, it's actually exploded uh, my industry and made, made room for more financial planners, which is funny. So I think it, it's crystallized. Technology will continue to innovate and do what technology does. And uh, we can rely on that for things like uh, trading and rebalancing and so forth. And actually, that gives time for planners to spend more time where it counts. And uh, interesting phenomenon of uh, robo-firms having to incorporate more planners based on consumer demand. People are like, hey, well, I've got lives that are changing. I'm changing jobs. I'm having families. And I just want to talk to somebody. So um, they ended up going upstream instead of downstream and hiring advisors back on. So um, super interesting. Okay, that brings us to today, financial services, wealth management, and sort of the hierarchy of the most important thing that financial planners are helping people with. And I'd say from the bottom and sort of most important, it's the just encouragement of consistent and increased saving and investment over time. Again, the onus is on you to uh, to get yourself throughout your um, financial independence years, your, your retirement years, and that means consistent, increased saving and investment. Um, and then above that, it's dealing with life events, things like buying homes, saving for college, dealing with stock options, maybe dealing with death of family members, grandparents and parents. Uh, and then it's things above that, like keeping the right mixture of stocks and bonds, rebalancing, and then even above 
coordination of uh, tax implications, estate planning, and insurance planning. So honestly, it's a it's a ton of stuff, and there's a ton of value out there. So um, here's my quick analogy. You know, the fi- the financial planner for today is so much more akin to a doctor or pediatrician. I have three kids, as you may know, and so my wife and I are at the pediatrician a lot. And uh, so the cool thing about the pediatrician, they get to know your situation intimately. They know all of my kids and their quirks and uh, their medical history. So one, they've got an ongoing relationship. Two, they prescribe medicine where needed and otherwise just give some helpful tits, uh, tips and hints. Uh, and then the last is they refer to a specialist where needed. And frankly, it's just that simple. Ongoing relationship, prescribe what's necessary, refer to a specialist, keep a part of a team, That's awesome. So should everyone have a doctor? Um, I'd say mostly, yeah. Um, Should everyone have a trusted and competent financial planner? Yeah, I'd say heck yeah. So to some extent, uh, that may change the varying degree of what type of planner you work with. But um, I think there's a, there was a skepticism in the past of uh, ad, the, the brokers of the world and what their um, conflicts of interest were, and it's changed a lot. And so uh, I think that leads us to the situation we're in now, which is so many good, competent, trusted financial planners out there. And um, okay, that takes us to where we are today. I think one thing I wanted to add is just explain the four different providers, like the four different main pillars that are out there in financial services. And hopefully this is uh, some added context for, you know, there's a lot of people that say they're a financial advisor, financial planner, but it's important to know like which which vertical are they working under? And, um, you know, obviously I'm biased, but based on where I work, so I'll try to be unbiased in my explanation of this. So just to know what are the four main verticals? Let's start with number one, probably the oldest. It's the insurance company, the insurance company. So not picking anybody in particular, but the names that come to mind are places like uh, Northwestern Mutual, Mass Mutual, Prudential. So the main source of their business, how that they're you know, sort of their their product creation and sales is uh, life insurance, health insurance, maybe annuities, and um, you know, insurance companies have morphed to adopt some wealth management component within them, but still, nonetheless, it's a it's an insurance based business. The second type of provider would be a bank that has a wealth management division. These are places like Bank of America that has Merrill Lynch or Wells Fargo or Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs. Uh, historically, people call these wirehouses, and uh, this was most popular for a lot of the baby boomers. Um, and uh, again, the bank, the primary method of business, maybe the the mortgage, the credit card, some sort of lending, but they've morphed into offering a wealth management type of division. Um, the third type of provider would be the current brokers, discount brokers of today. Uh, these are easily the most popular. Uh, I take that back. Probably the wirehouse are most popular, but these are growing in popularity, the discount brokers. That would be Vanguard, Fidelity, TD Ameritrade, and Charles Schwab. Uh, Their technology has just allowed for so much um, from consumers to be DIY, and and that's super awesome. So I think the main thing that they provide historically has been – the, the formation of mutual funds or just the access to the exchange. And uh, they again, they've also offered wealth management divisions within these discount brokers. So pretty cool. Um, the last component is actually where the company that I work for falls into. And this is the uh, type of provider called a registered 
Investment Advisor, or RIA for short. So uh, I think an interesting thing to point out, the insurance company, the bank, and the brokerage firm all create some type of physical product. Maybe it's the life insurance, it's the uh, mortgage or, or, or credit card, or it's the mutual fund. A registered investment advisor isn't specifically creating a physical product to package and sell somebody. So I guess the rationale there is the uh, RIA, Registered Investment Advisor, has uh, the least amount potentially of conflicts of interest because they're not actually creating something that allows for this sort of open ar- open architecture platform for a uh, financial planner at an RIA to pick and choose what makes sense for their clients. Oftentimes they'll use the custodianship, they'll use a discount broker to hold their clients' money. So they'll, you know, an RIA financial planner will have their clients' money at Charles Schwab or at TD Ameritrade, uh, something like that. So, uh, yes, the uh, again, using my analogy from above, the pediatrician, the pediatrician, let's pretend that they're an independent person. They might associate to a hospital, but they're they're completely independent. So they can, they can pick and choose which medication to prescribe. They can pick and choose which specialist to refer to. So, yes, this most closely aligns to um, what my company WorthPoint is a part of and and who, how I operate with my clients. All right. I hope that was helpful. So much information, but um, I think it's important for us to get some context so that you know who you're working with. Maybe you're working with a financial planner that works at an insurance company. You're working with a financial advisor that works at a bank. You're working with a uh, financial consultant at a brokerage company, or you're working with a financial planner at a registered investment advisor. So um, this way you're armed with the information of the the mindset that they have as they're coming to the table and uh, what tools they have in their toolkit. Uh, Enough on that. Okay, back to our trivia questions. Let's talk about some of the answers, um, and then uh, we'll wrap it up for today. I talked about the two major stock exchanges, the answers there. First, New York Stock Exchange, NYSE. The second, the NASDAQ. All right, those are the two most, uh, the biggest stock exchanges for us for U.S. publicly traded stocks. There's other exchanges for futures. We're not going to go there. Uh, bonus question was, who knows when they were established? So I found this super interesting. The uh, New York Stock Exchange established 1817. Hey, yo, that's old. And the NASDAQ established 1971. Super interesting. All right, next question was on the three most typical indexes that are referenced in the news. The three indexes that are referenced, the first, Dow Jones, Dow Jones Industrial Index, the second, S&P 500, Standard & Poor's 500, and then last, the NASDAQ. Another a rant I want to get on at a future time is how much of a waste of freaking time it is for the news to talk about these three indices because they don't offer us really any value at all to know how the market's performing. Um, that's my own personal take. So um, <laughs> just know that uh, try, try not to pay attention too much on the day-to-day pricings of uh, the different indexes. Um, Moving on, uh, the WIT exchange is also a popular index. That would be the NASDAQ exchange is a popular index. That's the NASDAQ. And then the last thing, what index 
is cap weighted, which index is price weighted. So I'm going to break this down a little bit. Super nerdy. S&P 500 is capitalization weighted, meaning of the 500 largest companies in the United States. Let's pick on Apple. If Apple is uh, the largest in terms of their size, then they're going to be they're going to be a, a bigger component of that index. And if they have a good or bad day, that's going to move the needle slightly more than maybe a smaller company like um, uh, like a Verizon or United Healthcare or something like that. So compare that to the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and that would be price weighted. So if you've got a stock price that's 150 versus a stock price that's 300, the uh, stock the company that has a stock price that is 300 that'll move the needle a little bit more if they have a good or bad day. <laughs> more comments on that another time, but there you go. S and P 500 is cap weighted. Dow is price weighted. So. Man, guys, thanks for going through the history lesson with me today. Thanks for letting me go on a couple of rants. Here are the final takeaways, and we're done for the today. First big thing, work with a trusted financial professional. Doesn't matter the vertical necessarily, but you got to know that you're working with somebody that you trust. Uh, there's a lot of noise out there, so you want to trust somebody to understand your situation and just give you the right info for what you need. That's probably the number one big thing. And then the second thing is get back to doing what you love and what you do best, which is probably take care of your family and crush it at work. I, I guess the I don't want people to overthink this whole financial planning, saving, and investing thing. Yes, we need to spend time on it, but uh, once you check off all of the check boxes, get back out to what you love. Do what you do best. Again, take care of your family. Absolutely crush it at work. Guys, thanks for being here. We'll see you next week for another episode. Thanks for tuning in to The John Chapman Show. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. We encourage your questions, comments, and feedback. For additional information, check out thejohnchapmanshow.com or look for John on LinkedIn and Twitter. See you next week.